This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. A slightly shorter one this week, but equally fascinating as I chat to Professor Carl Chin, MBE. If you've watched Peaky Blinders, that's where Carl comes from. He was born and bred in Birmingham. He's a former bookmaker, and as you're about to find out, he comes from a family of bookmakers, stretching back to the early 1900s all the way to the infamous Peaky Blinders. He splits fact and fiction from the famous TV series and explains how the gangs evolved in Birmingham and London during the various turf wars and what eventually happened to some of the characters made famous in the series like Alfie Solomons. If you've watched Peaky Blinders, you should really enjoy this, and if you haven't, it's still a fascinating insight into what was going on in the UK only a hundred years ago. Joining me now is the author of the Sunday Star Times bestseller, Peaky Blinders, The Real Story, and he's written a sequel to that now. It's Peaky Blinders, The Legacy. Professor Carl Chin, MBE, joins me now. How are you, Carl? Very well, Andy. Can I thank you for asking me to join you today? No problem at all. What do I do? I call you Professor, or do Carl, I call you call me Carl? Just Carl. That's fine. Okay. Just Carl. Looking at the the book, we're going to go through the book shortly and and hear about the power struggles and the gang battles of the early nineteen twenties. But I'd kind of like to get to know you a little bit first as well, because your great granddad was a Peaky Blinder, wasn't he? Yeah, he was. The the real Peaky Blinders, Andy, were not one gang. They were backstreet thugs in Birmingham in the late 19th century, very start of the 20th century, gathered in lots of different gangs. But there were also violent men who were like Peaky Blinders, and they were known as Peaky Tights. My great-grandfather's older brother was the leader of a Peaky Blinder gang in Sparkbrook in Birmingham, and my great-grandfather was a Peaky he was violent. He was a vile man. He beat my great grandmother, and I've got no respect for him. Wow. So, were they illegal, off course bookmakers like in the show? No. My granddad and my dad were illegal, off course bookmakers until 1961 when cash betting away from the race course was legalised in, Bur- in Britain. But the backstreet thugs of the Peaky Blinders, like the Scotlers of Manchester and Salford, uh, like the Larrakins, of Australia, they were not involved in organised crime. Yes, they got involved in some petty crime, going into a pub, ordering a round of drinks and refusing to pay. And if the landlord asked to pay, they smashed the pub up. Sometimes intimidating shopkeepers to give them something for nothing. But they were not major gangsters. They were backstreet thugs. And their main concern, like the gangs of Glasgow, was to assert their fighting prowess. So why were they called the Peaky Blinders? The myth has grown up that they were called Peaky Blinders because they stitched a disposable safety razor blade into the peak of their caps. And in a fight, they whipped off the cap to slash it across the forehead of their enemy, hence causing blood to go in the eyes to blind them. It's a myth. It didn't happen. Number one, 
disposable safety razor blades were not sold in great quantities in England until just before the First World War. By then, the Peaky Blinder gangs had been put down. Number two, those disposable safety razor blades were too expensive. Number three, they didn't need them. They used their boots, which they owned. These are mostly poor men. They owned their own boots. They fought with them, steel toe cap boots. They had their belts. That was their main weapon. Old-fashioned thick leather belts, Andy, with heavy buckles. And they would wrap it round the wrist and leave a look back at six to eight inches free. And with that then, with the buckle at the top of the free end, they would slash and hit, cause vicious industry, injuries. They would fight with bricks and half bricks, with stones. So the idea that they were organised gangs that had this distinctive weapon in the peak of their caps is a myth. Right, and was so was Thomas Shelby a Peaky Blinder? There was no such person as Thomas Shelby. He's fictional. Stephen Knight, the author of the series, which has been brilliant for Birmingham, it's a powerful series, it's engaging, it's exciting. Stephen Knight's family came from the small leaf, Borsley areas of Birmingham, and his paternal, uh, his dad's uncles were a family called the Sheldons, who had been Peaky Blinders. And so I think from what he has said to the press, the the idea of mythologising these gangsters emerged from stories his dad had told him. One of my favourite characters in the TV show was Alfie Solomons. Now, you yeah. knew his brother, didn't you? His younger brother. I met him. I'm from an, an illegal bookmaking background. I was a bookmaker myself, a legal bookmaker. And back in the mid to late 80s, I was researching a book about illegal betting in England, Scotland and Wales. Dad put me in touch with a lot of old bookies from down south. They told me about Billy Kimber and the Birmingham gang and they told me about Darby Sabini and his Anglo-Italian stroke English stroke Anglo-Jewish gang mm. from London that fought the Birmingham gang. Yeah. Through them, I was put in touch with Simeon Solomon who betted under the name of Sidney Lewis. He was the younger brother of the real Alfie Solomon. Not Solomon's as in the series, Solomon. Right. Do you think the show was a fair reflection of who Alfie Solomon was? Alfie Solomon was not an Orthodox Jew. He was from a secular Jewish background. His family were long established in England. He served with honour during the First World War, but he was turned into a gangster, I believe, by a brutal beating when Thomas Armstrong one of the most vicious, violent and nastiest dogs in the Birmingham gang, battered Alfie Solomon. Armstrong had got a pair of heavy field glasses, binoculars, smashed them into the face of Alfie Solomon, making his face a bloody mess. He fell backwards, Armstrong smashed his foot down on him. Alfie Solomon's younger brother, Simi, told me that's when the war began between us and them, the North and the South. He said, and my brother turned to Derby Sabini, for support. Tell me about Derby Sabini, because there were two main gangs, weren't there? There were Sabinis and then the Birmingham gang. The Sabini gang has been, in the series, Derby Sabini is portrayed as a mafia-style don, isn't he? Elegantly dressed, Italian accent. He was nothing of the kind. But his dad had come over as a child. He was from northern Italy, but not Sicily. And his mom, Liza Hanley, was an English woman. He has a tough gang. They are brought in by a power of the East End Jewish underworld, a man called Edward Emanuel. Alfie Solomon, the Jewish bookmaker, turned to him. He brings in 
the Sabini mob. What he basically wants is to push the Bergen gang out. The Sabini gang are brought in. It kicks off in March, late, late March 1921. Sabini's attacked at the Greenford trotting track. And thereafter, the spring and summer of 1921 is marred on the racecourses and streets in North London by violence. Tell me about the incident where Darby Sabini was at a racecourse that kick-started the gang wars. He's at the Greenford trotting track. He reckons he went there to support Jewish bookmakers. The Birmingham gang had heard that he'd now been brought in to support the Jewish bookmakers. And he was attacked and he pulled a gun. There was a mob around them. They got pieces of wood and they got bottles and they were shouting, let's get him, let's kill him. And he fired this gun. The police came and eventually managed to save him. And in court, he later said that without the police, I could have died. Thereafter, there are big battles. There's the Battle of Alexandra Park, when the Birmingham gang went in in single file through the main betting ring. I interviewed a bookmaker called Lou Prince who was there that day. He said it was frightening, Carl. The Birmingham mob, their leader had got a shooter and everybody just fled. And that then was followed by more violence across southern England. No violence in Birmingham, Andy. Right. No gang had the power to challenge the Birmingham gang on their own turf. You mentioned before um, the Alexandra Park incident. There was something that led up to that where Kimber and Sabini met up first, didn't they? And then there was some drama. It's pretty obvious that the two lots of gangs were fairly evenly matched. And there were attempts to sort it out before a major war broke out between the gangs. To that end, Kimber went to meet Savini at his house in King's Cross. He'd moved from Little Italy now, not far, mm-hmm. still in North London, but he had he had moved. So the head of Birmingham comes down and meets with the head of London to try and sort out the racetrack wars. But the head of the Birmingham gang is now living in London. So it looks like as a bit of a drinking party, they went to the meeting on the understanding that Alfie Solomon would not be there. Who turns up as they're leaving? Alfie Solomon. Kimber went for Solomon and called him racist names. According to Solomon, Kimber pulled a gun. I think it's the other way around. Solomon's been attacked by Kimber, even though Kimber is drunk, he's still too powerful. And Kimber shot in the back and found outside. He's then taken to hospital. And then things go pear-shaped at Alexandra Park because of this, doesn't it? Yeah. So that ends any attempts at a truce. And it's Alexandra Park. Both gangs turn up in big numbers. The police are alerted. They try to stop any trouble. Most of the London gang, the Sabinis, are moved away. But that's when the Birmingham gang went through the main ring looking for Anglo-Italians and Anglo-Jewish people to attack, led by a man called Tony Martin. He was a minder, looked after bookmakers, protected them. Tell me about the Ipsom Road ambush and how that all finished up. Kimber is probably still recovering. And the Birmingham gang decided to turn up in huge numbers at Epsom to assert their control. So if they can defeat the Sabinis down south, they've got no opposition. Lots of them turn up to Epsom, but one group of the Birmingham gang, led by Edward Banks, is in a coach, a Sharaband as it would have been called, and they leave early. And they are waiting for any Jewish Anglo-Jewish, Anglo-Italian bookmakers or anybody connected to Sabini's to leave. Not far from Kingston on the Hill, seven bookmakers 
from Leeds, mostly Jewish, arrive. And the Birmingham gang ambush them, attack them. They send their, one of their taxis into the vehicle carrying the Leeds bookmakers. It smashes it up. And then they attack them with terrible weapons, choppers, hammers. Some people say it was a mistake because the Leeds bookmakers were allies of the Birmingham gang. Out of the 28 men arrested that day, the police were really quick. And they went for a drink at a nearby pub. How daft is that? So they, didn't they find them all in a beer garden? They found them in a beer garden at a nearby pub. So the police surrounded them, didn't they? And The police surrounded them and an armed policeman went into the beer garden to arrest them, followed by unarmed policemen. They actually thought at the time, because the Irish War of Independence was going on, and they actually thought at first it was an attack by Sinn Féin and the IRA. Nothing of the kind. Right. It was the Birmingham gang. And the 17 men who got sent down, Andy, were some of the most violent, brutal, horrible men in Birmingham. They included men who'd murdered, manslaughtered, and viciously assaulted people. And then then we go to Bath. So then Kimberley's now recovered. And he decides that in the summer of 1921, he's going to get Alfie Solomon. At Bath, by all accounts, as the train from Birmingham arrived, Scores upon scores of Birmingham roughs. Not all of them were in the Birmingham gang, but they were attracted by the potential of trouble and making some money. And the Jewish, Anglo-Jewish and Anglo-Italian bookmakers and punters were brutally assaulted that day. They hit them with sandbags and hammers. Alfie Solomon's brother was viciously attacked and Alfie Solomon himself was beaten up badly, really badly, by, by Billy Kimber and a mob of brummies. The Birmingham, so there was a truce with the Birmingham gang. So the Sabinis basically had London, uh, the South, but then the Sabinis had to start dealing with gangs in London as well, didn't they? They did. Because the Elephant Boys and George Bromley Sage from North London are excluded, they form an alliance in 1922 to take on the Sabini gang. And they... The Elephant Boys are powerful, South London. So the Elephant Boys from Elephant and Castle? Yeah, so right. the Elephant Boys, yeah, South London and the Elephant and Castle. From all around that area, though, not just the Elephants, all around. Then North London, George Bromley Sage around Camden Town, he pals up with an unlikely ally, Freddie Gilbert. And Freddie Gilbert had been one of the main men in the Sabini gang, but they'd fallen out with him, and he'd been carved up badly by Alfie Solomon. They attacked him, knocked him out with a bottle, and Solomon carved him up with his knife in his leg and by his eye. He woke up and he put Solomon away. But then they beat him up again and carved him up again. So he leaves the Sabini gang. He pals up with George Bromley Sage. And this Camden Town gang that emerges really is an alliance of the Elephant Boys, North Londoners with George Bromley Sage, and the Titanics, and there's vicious fighting and attacks, particularly, again, sadly, racist, anti-Semitic attacks on the Jewish bookmakers through the spring and summer of 1922 in London and around London. When you talk about carved up, because you talk about a certain instrument a lot in your book that was involved in the carving up, um, tell me about that. Tell me about the wounds that they used to inflict on people and the way in which they did it. It was a cutthroat razor, an old-fashioned razor. You've seen them. And they would use the cutthroat razor to slash. 
a man would be held. They would fight with each other with them, but if they could get somebody on the own, two of the gang would hold him by his shoulders, pin him to the floor, and then slash. And it would usually be a, a, across the cheek and a down to the mouth. So it looked like they always had a smile. Horrible wound, 25, 30 more stitches at a time. Some men were crisscrossed with razor right. slashes. So they get a cross putting on their cheek. Yeah, because they've had so many splashes and attacks. Sometimes <laughs> Where do we put sad. a new one? <laughs> yes. Sad, isn't it? Yeah. And upsetting. And, they would, and, and some of them thought this was a, a symbol of their hardness, the more slashes they had on their face. And they, you can imagine at a race course, Andy, a man with several different slashes is coming up to you as a bookmaker saying, right, I want to see off you for Take it. Take it. Take my money. <laughs> so, and what they would also do, they would have the top of the cutthroat razor, you know, the handle part, just showing through the pockets of their suit. So people would know that they're bad. Yeah, part of the intimidation. And then if the coppers picked them up, they'd say, well, no, well, I'm stopping here tonight. That's why I need my own razor. So very difficult to prosecute them. The Birmingham gang much preferred Hammers. They were actually known as the Hammer Boys from Birmingham by many people. Like proper building hammers that they'd use to hammer and nails. Yeah, yeah. hammer that you would hammer a nail in, into a wall or whatever it was. Heavy nail, heavy hammers, and they would bang across your head, your arms, your shoulders, your body, anywhere. And that's where you get the expression from. You're going to get hammered. Oh. Literally, they would use that. They also use sandbags to attack people. Sandbags, it seems like a little bit labour-intensive. Yeah, that's what I thought when I first read about it. But, you know, somebody's being hammered and then somebody get, picks up a sandbag and smashes his face. But what's going to happen? You're going to fall backwards, you're on the floor, you get kicked, you get punched, you're getting hammered. Horrible violence. Wow. These are not meant to be admired, Andy. They're not romantic, glamorous anti-heroes. They're vicious, vile thugs. Any other instruments of death that they used to use? The, well, they would use guns, revolvers, particularly right. in London. The revolver was much more, a, a shooter was more likely to be used in London. Occasionally it's used in Birmingham. But the razor in London, the hammer from Birmingham were the main weapons. Isn't there one that you spoke about with the belt? Oh, the Peaky Blinders used belts. The Birmingham gang, although they were made up of Peaky Blinders, tended to use hammers. But the Peaky Blinders originally, their favourite weapon was a belt. Now, these were heavy leather belts with thick buckles. The Peaky Blinders of Birmingham would wrap the belt around the wrist. That would leave a loop which they would buckle. So you've got the heavy buckle at the top there. It's wrapped around here and then bang, slashing, attacking. People lost their eyes. People had terrible wounds. The first man who was attacked by someone known as a Peaky Blinder, he had so many contusions on his head from the belting and from the kicks he received on the ground, he had to have an operation called trepanning, part of the skull, pierced, to relieve oh the pressure gosh. on his brain. Ouch. Yes. God, that sounds awful. Oh, down south as well, very often, and perhaps the Birmingham Gang at times, they'd use knuckle dusters. Right, standard, yeah, the ones you see in the movies. Yeah, and basically if there was no weapons around, they'd pick up whatever they could. In a pub, it would be bottles yeah. and glasses. And they would smash the bottle over somebody's head, they would smash a glass and they would glass somebody. What is a chopper? 
Ah, a chopper is a, um, an axe, a small axe. Oh, like a little, like a hatchet, like a tomahawk. Yeah, a proper axe, a hatchet, like a hatchet. And that, that was found on some members of the Birmingham gaggle, not on them, but in the coach and around the coach after the Epsom Road ambush. Most of them, and this is interesting, one of the reasons they used a razor was that because a razor was unlikely to kill somebody, not like a knife. Mm. A razor could slash, very unlikely unless you've got an artery, it would kill someone. So they were clever with that. Because they didn't want to get hung. For murder, you could get hung. Mm. Occasionally, they might use knives as well. So did Darby Sabini ever get out of crime, and, and how did it end for him? Darby Sabini's move away from crime is quite slow. He moved to the South Coast. I am certain that he's got very little, if any, connection with his old gang in London. His brother, Harry Boy, remains there, very wealthy, and he stays in London. He has some connections. So Sabini, I am certain, moved slowly but surely away from gangsterism through the late 20s and into the 30s. But he doesn't make lots of money. Uh, He's arrested for receiving in the Second World War and he's imprisoned during which time his son is killed. Billy Kimber, did he ever retire from the violent life? Very much so. Billy Kimber really like Sabini wants legitimacy. He actually is more successful in that goal, achieving that goal than Sabini. He stays out of the war that happens in 1922 with Freddie Gilbert, with George Brubisage and the Elephant Boys, his former allies. But then he becomes a bookmaker in the West of England. He actually operates via agents. He moves to Torquay just before the Second World War and he and his second wife and their two daughters live a life of luxury. Cruises in the late 30s, Andy. Oh, nice. Yeah, cruises to South Africa and back, stopping off at Madeira, while his Birmingham daughters are living in poverty. Oh, what a horrible bloke. Him dies in 45, leaves just over three and a half grand, but he's enjoyed his life. Oh, that's and plenty back then, isn't it? Yeah, a lot of money. At the end of the racetrack wars, by, by the end of their lives, Billy Kimber probably finished on top of Sabini. As far as bank balance goes... Probably in ter- with regard to their children, no, because Sabini's daughters did well, well educated. Right. His son sadly was killed, went to uh, Hove Grammar School. But in terms of a settled life and probably how much he left, yes, Kimber just about outdid him. Okay. And then the Peaky Blinders or the Birmingham Gang, as a probably more factual way to put them, uh, did they carry on and when did they finish? What happens is after Kimber moves to London and following the truce with the Sabinis, the Birmingham gang splits back up again into its roots, the Brummager boys, and they start to fight each other. Right, and the Brummagem boys are a whole lot of little gangs, right? Yeah, a lot of little gangs, so they're no longer one gang that has been brought together by Kimber. They split back up again. Right. And they slowly disappear. Well, thank you very much for joining me, Professor Carl Chin, MBE. His book, Peaky Blinders, The Legacy, is out now. It's amazing. Make sure you go and have a read of it and learn all about the legacy of the Peaky Blinders. Fascinating read. Thank you very much for joining me. Well, thank you, Andy, for your questions. I really enjoyed talking with you. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It would be awesome as well if you could share it with your family and friends so we can keep making some quality content. Thanks again for listening.
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.